I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, we continue our conversation with Mercer University law professor Patrick Longan. Pat joins us to highlight the work of Judge William Augustus Boodle and his role in the case that desegregated the University of Georgia. Judge Boodle was a wise and courageous man, and we were lucky uh, that the case happened on his watch. Pat, thanks for joining us again. Last week, you gave us an excellent overview of the background of the case Holmes and Hunter versus Danner. We remembered that Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes applied to the university on July 11th, 1959, and after almost a year of delays by the university, they filed their lawsuit on September 2nd, 1960. They were represented, we remember, by Donald Lee Hollowell and Constance Baker Motley and Horace Ward. The trial was held on December 11th through the 17th of 1960, and on January 6th, 1961, Judge Boodle ruled that the two students could be admitted to the university. With that, I think that means it's time for the students to go to class. Is that correct? Well, uh, that was an interesting part of this. I mean, the, 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 the trial ended in mid-December of 1960. Judge Boodle ordered the parties and the lawyers to submit uh, briefs uh, on their legal positions very quickly. Uh, the briefing ended on January 4th of 1960, and two days later, Judge Boodle uh, uh, entered his order. And what he issued was uh, an injunction, uh, and essentially that's just a, a court order that said that the University of Georgia could not refuse to enroll uh, Holmes and Hunter. And interestingly and surprisingly to a lot of people, uh, Judge Boodle said that it was up to Holmes and Hunter, but that they were entitled to enroll immediately hmm. for the winter quarter that was set to begin um, the next week. He left it up to them whether they wanted to, to move that quickly, but uh, he ordered the university to um, admit them uh, for that quarter if they chose uh, to come. And so they chose to, to start that winter quarter. They chose to register for it. And so three days later, uh, on January 9th, uh, they were in the process of actually registering uh, at the university. Uh, and um, then something happened that they didn't expect, and that's that Judge Boodle entered a stay of his own order. What's a stay? Well, a stay is, is kind of like a pause button. Uh, it um, essentially it freezes everything pending some other event. Uh, so here, uh, Judge Boodle's stay, in effect, said that the University of Georgia did not have to admit uh, Holmes and Hunter, did not have to register them, um, pending the university's appeal uh, of, of his ruling. And in fact, Holmes and Hunter were on campus registering when news of the, of the stay reached uh, Athens, and the way they learned about it was that there were some cheers that went up from some groups of white students uh, who were... Uh, they're observing the registration uh, process. Uh, and that's how they found out about it. So uh, they, they had to stop the, the process. They, they, they got in the car and they, and they left. Uh, and there's actually some old news footage 
uh, of this when they get in the car and leave. And you can hear as they drive away, one of the white students yells at them, uh, have a good trip to Africa. That's pretty interesting that the judge would issue a ruling that says the students could attend the university and then give the university the chance to appeal what he just said the students could do. Is that something that's customary in these kinds of cases, or was the judge changing his mind? It was definitely not that he was changing his mind, um, but he actually gave more than one explanation uh, for why he granted the stay. Uh, he said on, on the one hand that, uh, and I'm sure this was true, that it was his policy and his routine to, to stay uh, orders in his court, uh, essentially out of fairness to the, to the losing side. I mean, after all, uh, judges do commit error sometimes, and that gets corrected in the Court of Appeals. And so it's, it's only fair for the losing party to have time, uh, especially if something irreversible might happen in the meantime. It's only fair for them to have time to appeal. And so Judge Boodle um, at one point said, well, you know, it was uh, routine. I always uh, did it. But uh, he also uh, recognized the particular uh, importance of issuing a stay uh, in, in this case. I mean, he recognized that he was upsetting a a policy, a precedent that had lasted for 175 years, mm. that he was turning it you know, uh, on its head. Uh, and uh, and he, he frankly said that uh, you know, he, he wanted the support uh, of, of the Court of Appeals. So uh, he, was, he was definitely not changing his mind. But things moved very, very uh, quickly with respect to that uh, stay. Um, the uh, lawyers for, for Holmes and Hunter, uh, they went right away to the Court of Appeals uh, in Atlanta to try to get the, um, the stay lifted so that the registration process could uh, be completed. And that went before Judge Elbert Tuttle. Uh, Judge Tuttle uh, wasted no time. By 2.30 p.m. that same day, uh, he had overturned Judge Boodle's stay, mm. which put the case back uh, to the point where Judge Boodle initially had uh, had it, where he had ordered uh, the admission of them. So by 2.30 that afternoon, Judge Boodle's original um, order is back in effect. Well, the university uh, wasn't going to stop there, and so they uh, put uh, somebody, put a lawyer on a, an airplane to go to Washington. Uh, and the next day, uh, took it to uh, Hugo Black, who was the circuit justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, every circuit has a particular justice assigned to it to hear uh, emergency uh, appeals like this. Well, uh, Justice Black uh, decided uh, that he would take it to the whole court. And so he took it to the whole court uh, that day. And that day, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States upheld Judge Tuttle, which had the effect of, again, uh, seeing that Judge Boodle's original order uh, went into it uh, was going to be in effect. And, um, and that actually led to a, a very famous phrase about uh, the Holmes and Hunter case that it went from Boodle to Tuttle to Black and back uh, in the space of uh, about 48 hours. So we've gone from the federal court up to the appeals court, on to the Supreme Court, back to the federal court. So now it's time to go to class, right? Uh, not, not nearly that simple. Okay. Um, when the, the stay was overturned, 
uh, that put the governor of Georgia, Ernest Vandiver, in a, a, a very difficult position. Uh, now, he had run for that office uh, on a platform of segregation, uh, that, that no, not one uh, black student would be admitted to public schools in Georgia. Uh, but he also had a, a problem not just of his campaign promises, but there was a law uh, in the state of Georgia that uh, any public school, and this included the University of Georgia, that admitted a, a black student, whether voluntarily or as a result of a court order, automatically had all of its state funding cut off. And so uh, Governor Vandiver said in what, what he called at the time the saddest duty of his life, he issued a press release that he was going to sign an order that uh, that uh, took all of the state funding away from the University of Georgia, which of course would mean the, the university would have to close. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, I, I suppose the thinking of the legislature had been when they put this in place; it had been in uh, on the books since 1956 that uh, better not to have a university at all hmm. uh, than to have a university that had black students. Um, so what happened uh, was that uh, uh, Mr. Hollowell and Ms. Motley um, heard about Governor Vandiver's statements. Um, and they went um, the next morning to Judge Boodle's chambers uh, in Macon uh, and asked uh, for what's called an ex parte temporary restraining order to prevent and to order the governor of Georgia not to comply with Georgia law uh, and not to cut off funds uh, to the University of Georgia and uh, Judge Boodle issued that order. Ex parte, that, that sounds like a mouthful. What, what does ex parte well, mean? Well, ex parte orders are, are very unusual. I mean, we have an adversarial system of justice, which normally means that a court will not act uh, unless uh, it hears from uh, both sides. But in extraordinary circumstances, it is possible for one side uh, to be heard. Uh, and for the, the court to, uh, uh, to issue an order without ever hearing from the other side. And uh, that's what uh, happened here. And uh, later that day, uh, Governor Vandiver uh, sent Judge Boodle a telegram, uh, which actually become very, very, very famous. It was hard to remember when people sent telegrams. Hmm. But he sent a telegram to Judge Boodle uh, where he said that he was... Uh, you know, registering the strongest possible protest at the, I believe he called it the usurpation uh, of the uh, legislative prerogatives uh, of the General Assembly of Georgia. He was, he was going to close the university to keep from complying with my order. Two things are significant uh, about uh, the way the governor handled that. First, he did not defy the order. Uh, and he put in the telegram that he was not going to defy the order. And he also began steps to get that law uh, repealed uh, so that uh, in the future there w we would not have this uh, collision you know, where if a black student is admitted by whatever means, state funding gets cut off. He thought that this was um, uh, improper for a, a federal judge to tell the governor of a sovereign state uh, what the governor could do, especially when the governor was simply complying with the laws uh, uh, on the books, uh, but he began that telegram with a statement that said uh, that he was not going to uh, defy uh, the court order. Uh, and again, uh, to the governor's credit, uh, he did initiate steps to get that law uh, repealed. So 
where do things stand now? At that point, uh, it's clear that um, they have the right to register, uh, and they do. Um, they register for their classes. Uh, Charlene Hunter uh, is given her uh, dormitory uh, room. Um, as a uh, female student at that time, she had to live on campus. Uh, Mr. Holmes, uh, as a transfer student and being male, uh, the policy did not require him to live on campus, so he had uh, made arrangements to live off of off campus. Um, but that first week that they're um, in school, uh, and this is the, the evening of uh, January the 11th, uh, there was a riot uh, on campus. Uh, and uh, by all uh, accounts, uh, uh, it was prearranged. Uh, there are even stories of, of students uh, making dates to go to the basketball game that night and the riot afterwards. Hmm. So uh, the, it was not a secret that there was going to be some kind of um, demonstration of some kind. And it occurred outside the dormitory where Charlene Hunter uh, was. Uh, one of the officers uh, who was trying to disperse this group described it later as a, a howling, cursing mob. Uh, they, they, they chanted uh, uh, vile racial things uh, at the Charlene Hunter. Um, the white girls in the dormitory had been told to turn all their lights off so that the only light that would be on would be uh, Charlene Hunter's mm. so that they would know where to throw the rocks and the bottles uh, and the bricks. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, 60 windows were broken uh, in that dormitory that night. Uh, and a brick and a Coca-Cola bottle made it uh, through the, uh, the window of Charlene Hunter's uh, uh, dorm room. Uh, it uh, was a very dangerous situation. Uh, eventually, the, the rioters were um, dispersed with, with tear gas. Um, but uh, instead of dealing with the students who caused the riot, the university suspended Holmes and Hunter. Uh, so theoretically, uh, for their own safety. Now, remember, Holmes lived off campus. Mm. I mean, he, was, he wasn't even there. Um, uh, to give you some idea of, of how this was viewed by at least some people uh, in power, uh, the executive secretary to the governor uh, actually praised uh, the, the students uh, who had rioted uh, because they had shown uh, courage and character uh, in the face of uh, I believe what he called dictatorship and tyranny. Hmm. And so what ended up happening was that uh, Holmes and Hunter were driven back to their homes in Atlanta that night by the Georgia uh, Highway Patrol uh, and were suspended uh, from, from school. So, uh, you know, we've, we've been through the stay, we've been through the cutoff of funds, and now here we are. Uh, and once again, their ability to attend class uh, has been uh, thwarted, at least temporarily, uh, by uh, by the riot and then the, the university's decision to suspend them rather than to do something about the rioters. It's hard to wrap your mind around that all of this is happening over the course of five and six days. And these incidents that you're talking about happen usually within a 24 to 48 hour span. There's got to be a fix to this. Uh, what do you do? What do you do? I mean, at, at that point, uh, Holmes and Hunter's lawyers uh, went back to Judge Boodle, uh, and they went back to him to say, we need a, a court order to overturn the suspensions and to get them uh, reinstated. 
Uh, and on January 13th, the day they went to see Judge Boodle, uh, he ordered their reinstatement. Uh, and he, he said that the, their constitutional rights were not to be sacrificed. And they would not yield to violence and disorder. Uh, and he wrote that the, the lawful orders of, of this court uh, will not be frustrated by violence and disorder. And so he issued an injunction that from there forward, the university was not allowed uh, to suspend them uh, or expel them for their own uh, safety. Uh, and, and so they were back in place, uh, back where they could finally begin to attend class. It's worth emphasizing, I think, that uh, you know, Judge Boodle, you know, certainly, as you heard, you know, later said that uh, uh, all it took was common sense. But uh, he did not take any of this lightly. Mm. I mean, he he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he knew exactly how much of a precedent uh, he was setting. He knew that it was going to be unpopular, but he felt that it was uh, his duty uh, to enforce uh, the rule of law. Uh, he never, to my knowledge, ever said whether he agreed with Brown versus Board of Education. What he believed didn't matter. What mattered was uh, what the law was, mm. and he was going to follow the law, and, and he did it knowing the consequences. Given the racially charged atmosphere of the time, this had to have had some kind of personal impact on the judge himself. I mean, he wasn't living in a fishbowl or in a vacuum did this have an effect on him personally? It did, uh, and, 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 and like a lot of the uh, federal judges in the South at that time who, who, who did follow the law, he suffered some personal consequences. I mean, there, was, there were people that refused to sit with him in church. There were people that, you know, ostracized him. Um, he was burned in effigy on the Mercer campus, mm. uh, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, in um, South Georgia, in Sumter County, um, uh, they actually hung an effigy uh, of him. And there's a famous picture of this with a, a handwritten sign pinned to it that said, Turncoat Boodle. Um, and, uh, of course, he also received uh, many, many letters, uh, what he liked to call his, uh, quote-unquote, fan mail. <laughs> fan mail? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and... Uh, let me tell you about the fan mail and, and, and how I got to, to look at it. When uh, Judge Boodle died, his papers were donated to uh, Mercer University. Uh, and so they're in the special collections room uh, at uh, the Tarver Library uh, in Macon. And um, I spent some time uh, several years ago going through his papers. And, and as I did that, I found his files of the correspondence that he kept related to the, the UGA uh, case. And he had divided them into two categories, uh, favorable and unfavorable. <laughs> now, okay. let me tell you, there were many more letters that were unfavorable. Uh, and in that file, there were uh, uh, many of his so-called fans who, who wished him dead uh, or worse. Uh, some of the most vile uh, language I've, I've ever read mm. uh, directed uh, to him. Um, many, of course, remember this is 1961 uh, during the Cold War. Many of the letters accused him of being a communist. Mm. Um, but uh, there were some uh, positive, some supportive letters. He just kept those in a separate file. 
t- what were some of the the unfavorable ones that that st- stand out to you as you read them? Well, um, as I said, there's uh, many of them compared him to Khrushchev and Castro. Uh, that kind of take you back to that time. Um, there were um, uh, many that that uh, uh, talked about uh, the. the this great fear of the so-called mixing of the races uh, and uh, several that said things like they, you know, they, they, they hoped that, you know, his grandchild would, uh, in, in using the terminology of the day, you know, would, would marry a Negro uh, and that that would show him, you know, that kind of thing, just vile uh, uh, stuff. Um, uh, some stuff so vile that I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't quote it. Mm. Um, uh, death threats, uh, uh, several that um, hoped that he would burn in hell, uh, you know, uh, and said that they fully expected that he would mm. uh, as a result uh, of, of this uh, of this court order. So uh, it, it was a real glimpse uh, into the times uh, and uh, a, uh, a very clear way of seeing what he was up against, and he must have known uh, that, that there would be a reaction like that from some people. That's amazing that he, he kept all of that. What about the favorable ones? Well, uh, he, 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 he did keep uh, the file favorable ones. Now, it, it appears to me in looking at those files that he never responded to any of the unfavorable mm-hmm. ones. I mean, what would be the point? Mm-hmm. But that he did respond to um, uh, many, if not all, of the favorable ones. Some of them with just a note to say thank you for your letter. Uh, others uh, went to people that he, he he knew, former students of his, lawyers that had practiced in front of him, personal friends, and he responded uh, to them. But uh, there were uh, two that really um, uh, made an impression on me, and they were, uh, in, in all but one sense, identical. I was going through these files and just just going one letter after another and I came across one that was this very thick envelope uh, with with more than one thing in it and I wonder what this is and it's it's, it's obviously expensive embossed stationery hmm. and so I, I open it up and inside uh, is uh, an invitation to an engraved invitation to the University of Georgia graduation ceremonies, 1963. And as I'm pulling this out of the envelope, a little card fell out. And you know how when students send invitations to graduations, they include their cards. Mm -hmm. This card fell out into my lap and it said, Hamilton Earl Holmes. Mm. And so it was an, an invitation to the judge from Hamilton Holmes to come to the graduation that Judge Boodle had made possible, mm. along with many others, of mm. course. I found that very moving. And a few minutes later, I found another big, thick envelope. And so I I opened it up, and sure enough, a card fell out that said Charlene A. Hunter. Mm. And Judge Boodle, to my knowledge, did not attend the graduation, but he kept those invitations uh, for the rest of his life. Wow. Let's listen to what Judge Boodle says about his role in that case. It just happened to happen on my watch. I don't deserve any credit, don't seek any. But uh, I did what any 
self-respecting, honest judge would have done. Any thoughts on how the judge characterizes his role in the case? Well, I disagree with the judge on that. I mean, it's, it, it's one thing to know intellectually what the right thing uh, to do is. It's quite another actually to be able to do it uh, in the face of, of opposition and ostracism, death threats. I'll say I think we have a right to expect our judges uh, and other public officials to act with courage uh, and to support the rule of law, even in the face of opposition. But that expectation doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't uh, acknowledge the, the bravery, acknowledge the courage, acknowledge the sacrifice uh, when that's what it takes. I think Judge Boodle was a wise uh, and courageous man and we were lucky uh, that the case happened on his watch. Well said. We seem to pay attention to judges most when someone is nominated to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, but, but what is it about the role of judges in our system, whether it's at the federal, state, or local level, that is so critical to our democracy? And do you see the legacy of Judge Boodle and those like him still play a part in how and what judges do today. There's no question about it. I mean, the, the trial judges don't get the attention and the press that the nominations to the Supreme Court do, but the trial judges are the ones on the front lines. Uh, the trial judges are the ones who look parties and lawyers in, in the eye and, and, and make decisions day in uh, and day out and then move on to the next one. Um, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking that, you know, you, you hear people today talk, I think quite rightly, uh, about how polarized we are uh, in this country uh, politically today. It's true, uh, but it's not new. Hmm. Uh, I mean, if you read through Judge Boodle's fan mail, I mean, you can see how polarized we were over desegregation uh, over 60 years ago. Um, but what endures uh, and what Judge Boodle's example helps to, maybe, to, to, to make sure it endures, and what can keep us or, or bring us together, uh, is a continuing commitment to the rule of law, especially by those men and women like Judge Boodle on the front lines, the, the, the trial judges. They have to act with wisdom, they have to act with courage, despite politics, despite bitterness, despite opposition. And I think Judge Boodle remains a, a, a great example for all of us uh, in that regard today. That was our guest, Mercer University Law Professor Patrick Longen. Pat, thank you so much for joining us on Hidden Legal Figures and uh, educating us on this important historic case. Before I let you go, I understand that you've written an article about Judge Boodle and this historic case. Where can people get that article and get this information in their own personal library? Well, they can find it uh, in the uh, Stetson uh, Law Review. Uh, and the, the, the title of the article is You Can't Afford to Flinch in the Face of Duty. Excellent. Excellent. Pat, thank you so much. Thank you.
on the next Hidden Legal Figures. We join the distinguished attorney A.T. Walden here in Atlanta in securing the release of hundreds of protesters during the Atlanta student sit-ins. The young protesters were enamored uh, with Mr. Hollowell and he embraced uh, their activism. And many of them, as Charlene Hunter Galt observed, regarded him as a surrogate father. The student protesters often chanted, King is our leader, Hollowell is our lawyer. We shall not be moved. That and more will be part of our next episode when we highlight Donald Lee Hollowell. Thank you for listening and be sure to join us next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in February 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.